You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by R. Bruce Craig, who teaches American history at the University of Prince Edward Island in Canada. Uh, Mr. Craig is the author, among other things, of Treasonable Doubt, the Harry Dexter White Spy Case, which came out in 2004. And he's currently working on a biography of Alger Hiss. So, Bruce, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you, Mark. Uh, so espionage, Bruce, is a shadowy business, um, and in some sense, we might almost think of historians like yourself as being a, sort of a form of spy hunters in, in some way, uh, and, but it's a difficult business. Few records are kept about it on purpose, uh, and many of those that are kept are you know, locked up in safes in intelligence headquarters and, uh, and, and police headquarters and thus out of reach. So f- can you just help our audience understand just a little bit, when you're looking into you know, espionage uh, cases or Soviet intelligence operations in particular, we'll talk about today of 50 or 75 years ago, uh, what's available for historians to, to work with? How, how complete a, a set of uh, records is there to draw on? Well, there's, uh, certainly it depends on the nature of the case and the type of case that you're working with. Um, government records, of course, are available through the National Archives and Records Administration. But uh, for those of us of the, uh, of the espionage ilk, we uh, tend to rely a lot more on uh, federal agency records that relate to intelligence agencies, such as the CIA, uh, the FBI, and also the uh, National Security Agency, the NSA, otherwise known as no such agency. Uh, and these records um, uh, sporadically become available. The other thing that is available to us now is there is a, a smattering of records that have become available through uh, the KGB archives and some of the, uh, the, Soviet, uh, the old Soviet archives that have been opened. The critical material, though, that relate to the uh, the prominent spy cases, uh, uh, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the Alger Hiss case, in that uh, Hiss was uh, allegedly involved with uh, the GRU, which is, uh, uh, these records are not open, the KGB records, some of them are, at least for a short period of time, but we're greatly indebted, at least, to um, Alexander Vasiliev, for example, who 
uh, was a KGB uh, uh, agent who was given permission to go into the KGB archives, and for about a year, a year and a half, he copied notes, copied down notes uh, about people, some of whom he knew nothing about, but, you know, he copied them down, and we now have uh, nine or ten notebooks of his material that's actually online through the Wilson Center uh, for International uh, Scholars. And uh, if we were to put the facility of materials together with the Venona decrypts, which are these uh, um, uh, radio communication intercepts that were between the Kremlin and uh, uh, agents throughout the world, including Washington and New York, uh, these constitute at least uh, uh, the basic material that we have to work with. Uh, in the case of uh, prominent spy cases like Alger Hiss, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, the United States government, the FBI, the Justice Department, obviously knew a great deal at the time about these cases uh, which were, uh, that the public didn't know, and that, I think, contributed to a great deal of public controversy flourishing about these cases. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the sources available to the government but not normally available to the public is grand jury testimony. Can you, you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, what, grand jury yeah. testimony is normally sealed. Can you maybe start with why sure. is grand jury um, testimony normally sealed forever? Grand jury materials. Uh, uh, the grand jury is uh, not necessarily unique to the American legal system, but it's one of the things that the founding fathers wanted to make sure that uh, there would not be frivolous prosecution of people uh, basically for political reasons. And they set up uh, a requirement in our judicial system that evidence has to be brought before a body of citizens, known as the grand jury. They listen to the evidence that the government has collected, and then they decide whether or not there's cause to actually indict a particular person or not. Now, the thing that is uh, unusual and interesting about grand jury records is that um, these materials are sealed and never see the light of day generally. Um, the case that I brought, uh, called Inri Craig, is the precedent-setting case that opened up uh, grand jury records on the basis of uh, uh, their historicity alone. Uh, how this sort of came about is I was working on uh, my dissertation at the time, the Harry Dexter White spy case, and I found that Harry Dexter White had been had testified before the grand jury, and I wanted to have this grand jury testimony. In 1948, if I recall. Uh, yeah, he was, in, he was in 48. He was part of that whole espionage investigation that was taking place uh, in New York. Uh, the Justice Department was looking into Soviet espionage and penetration into government agencies. At the same time, the House Un-American Activities Committee was conducting its hearings uh, that uh, were kicked off largely by the revelations of Elizabeth Bentley, followed by Whitaker Chambers. And uh, these, uh, White was brought before the grand jury, and I felt that it was important to get these records because what ends up happening is when somebody testifies before the grand jury, they don't have a lawyer with them. And uh, in that these are supposedly sealed and not made public, people oftentimes say things in a grand jury that they would not say later on in uh, a court of law. So um, I went to a public citizen litigation group, um, and they agreed to represent me. And we brought suit to unseal the Harry Dexter White 
grand jury transcript. Now, we lost the case. We lost that particular case, but on appeal, the judge who was the appellate judge on this set a series of standards of what what tests do you have to meet in order to open up grand jury materials for their historicity alone. And uh, the court felt that the Harry Dexter White spy case didn't have the appropriate amount of public interest in it, so we said, well, then we'll take another case that definitely does, being the Alger Hiss case. So uh, we brought suit on a second grand jury case with the, uh, the Alger Hiss case, and about a year later, those records were unsealed. And I think what one of the sort of funny things about this thing is when we were working on the Hiss case, the government argued, said, well, Mr. Craig's request is, is so broad. Why doesn't he narrow it down to just one or two transcripts, which is what I originally had asked for in terms of the Harry Dexter White one. Uh, but uh, in the long run, I ended up actually getting the Harry Dexter White transcript as part of the Alger Hiss case. And then uh, since that time, there's been um, another case that we brought uh, in opening up the Rosenberg uh, grand jury uh, minutes. Did any of these grand jury records actually help us uh, change or nuance our understanding of any of these cases? It's a matter of nuancing and filling out the story. Um, I don't think anybody really expected that there would be a smoking gun per se. Uh, now in the case of the Rosenberg grand jury, uh, there was something fairly close to that in terms of one of the documents that was uh, revealed that was used. Uh, to justify the, quote, overt act in order to convict Ethel Rosenberg of uh, conspiracy to commit espionage. Uh, it became very obvious when you look at the grand jury record in particular that in prosecuting the Rosenberg case, irrespective of their guilt, there was uh, uh, judicial misconduct and prosecutorial misconduct that I'm convinced that if that had come out at the time, at least, in uh, when when they were being tried, that uh, no judge in the land would have uh, convicted them on the basis of the evidence as how it was collected. It's very similar to, there's another a very, uh, a fairly well-known case, the Judith Copeland case, in which uh, uh, the FBI had gathered all this information about Judith Copeland through wiretaps and, and that type of a thing. And uh, the, uh, the, it was collected illegally. And uh, when it came to trial, uh, Judith Copeland got off, some people would argue, on the basis of a technicality in that the material was collected illegally. Although, you know, we certainly know that she was guilty of what she was charged with, but it is a matter that the American legal system being what it is, um, uh, it's not exactly copacetic for the government to be engaged in illegal activities, uh, even if it means, uh, you know, prosecuting a case that uh, where somebody gets off, even though they're 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 guilty. Just as an aside, it's interesting to think of the resonances potentially of those issues. Uh, uh, in the context of terrorism today. Just because someone's guilty of the crime doesn't mean there isn't also perhaps government misconduct or, or malfeasance involved. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good, uh, 
a good similarity for sure. Um, you mentioned earlier the Vasiliev notebooks. Yes. And the Vasiliev notebooks led you to uh, look into someone called Agent Zero. Agent Zero, yes. You want yes. to talk about Agent Zero sure. a little bit? And um, I, I, this, I applaud you, by the way, yeah. for finding one a case with such a dramatic name. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is. I have a, a chapter in the, uh, the biography of Alger Hiss is going to deal with this because – in essence, um, Alger Hiss was the was the uh, the, uh, uh, the general counsel for the Nye Committee. What was the Nye Committee? The Nye Committee was uh, um, a committee composed largely of Republicans um, who were looking into uh, profiteering during World War One. And when was the committee active then? Uh, the committee would have been active in the in the 1920s. Okay. And uh, it was a matter where uh, Hiss was brought in. There was very little money for the committee. This was brought in on loan by the uh, from the uh, the Justice Department, and uh, or rather the Ag- Agriculture Department, I think it was in this case. Um, he was brought in to assist the committee as a staff person. Well, in the Vasiliev notebooks, there is some uh, there is identification of, uh, of a spy by the name of Agent Zero. And Agent Zero um, was uh, gathering information uh, about um, munitions companies, which the Soviets had a very strong interest in, as you can well imagine. Um, Alger Hiss also had uh, an interest in this as well because he, he discovered through his investigation that there were American aircraft companies, for example, that were selling aircraft engines to the Nazis in direct violation of, of law. And uh, this was of a concern to him, as it was a concern to Agent Zero. Um, in the identification of Agent Zero, this was um, uh, it, it takes a lot of legwork, a lot of patience, and that type of thing. But there were certain things that we knew based on clues that were given to us in the Vasiliev in the Vasiliev notebooks. Exactly, uh, we knew, for example, that Agent Zero was a woman. We knew that she was married. We knew that she was a Jew. We knew that she worked for the Nye Committee until it ended. And uh, then she went to work in 1942 with the Senate Military Affairs Committee or the Senate Special Committee to Investigate National Defense Program, the so-called Truman Committee. So with these clues, which were given you know, in some of these messages that were communications to uh, the agent who was handling uh, Agent Zero, um, I went about. Uh, trying to get a list, a complete list, of all the staffers that were on the Nye Committee. And I was able to do that. Then I gathered a list of the staffers for the Senate Military Affairs Committee and the Senate Special Committee on um, to investigate national defense program. And through the process of elimination, came down to one person who actually ended up meeting all the criteria. Who was that person? Uh, her name was Lydia Lee. And interestingly enough, the way she was actually identified is um, in some of these temporary committees, there isn't an actual staff roster. So what you end up doing is you have to go and look at the records that are reimbursement records. And because when staffers would go off and do investigation, they're going to claim a reimbursement. And uh, believe it or not, it was one reimbursement for a $1.25 that uh, – 
enable me to actually nail down this particular person. So if it, not for that, we still wouldn't know who Agent Zero was. We still wouldn't know who Agent Zero was. But the thing that I found sort of interesting about her as well is that it, clearly she was motivated. When we look at motivation of spies, she was clearly motivated because of the, the threat of fascism and Nazis. Uh, that was her motivation. And I think to a certain extent, uh, the assistance that Alger Hiss gave to the, to the Soviet Union and the Soviet cause at that particular time also was motivated partly by the fear of, of fascism and the rise of fascism. But I think what really irritated him was that corporate America, uh, particularly these airline uh, manufacturers, were uh, 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 turning over um, were manufacturing and selling air airplane engines to the Nazis. I think this just, you know, probably really, really irritated him. How long did Lydia Lee's espionage career last? Do we she, know that? Yeah, we actually do. Uh, she continued to work uh, through the end of World War I, uh, World War II, rather. And at the end of the war, she was approached again to sort of take on a new assignment. And she refused to. She said that uh, her husband is not in agreement with her on this particular, these activities that she's involved in, that she knows where the information is going, and that she is going to have nothing to do with them anymore. And so she, she separated her espionage activities to that extent. You, you made the comment there that she knows where the information is going. This is in, I take it, 1945 or so. Did that imply that earlier on she didn't necessarily know uh, where her uh, information was going, what she initially, was really doing? Initially, I think that's true. And the reason why I think that's true is that she was approached by a Soviet agent who initially recruited her, who was a newspaper reporter. And this newspaper reporter basically was gathering information from her and then, you know, using it allegedly for articles, but actually turning that information over to the Soviet Union. And very quickly, when uh, her information proved to be so important and so valuable, um, uh, the Moscow station in the, the, uh, the KGB headquarters uh, removed this reporter from her and had uh, somebody who was an actual line agent work with her directly. And uh, she was willing to assist at that time because she felt that the threat of uh, uh, the Nazi menace was such that she wanted to do her part because the Americans weren't doing anything about it, the British weren't doing anything, the only ones who were doing anything about it was the Soviet Union. And that was her motivation. So if I understand you then, there were actually two Soviet agents uh, on the Nye Committee staff, Alger Hiss and Lydia Lee. The, the Alger Hiss material is much more difficult to nail down. Okay. Um, uh, the reason why is that we don't really have firm documentary evidence like we have with Lydia Lee. Um, we have basically Chambers' word for it. Saying Whitaker that Chambers. Whitaker Chambers, who uh, initially said this was the first time that Alger Hiss had turned over documentation, was during the Nye Committee. Um, Chambers' testimony is one of these things that's sort of difficult to interpret because what he says in one instance is not necessarily corroborated or consistent throughout the whole time. But uh, if Chambers, if we take Chambers at his word, uh, the first documents that Alger Hiss would have turned over to the Soviet Union would have been materials relating to the Nye Committee records. So we now know, with the benefit of hindsight, the Venona materials, the Vasiliev materials, uh, etc., that literally hundreds of Americans 
spied for the Soviet Union during the well over three hundred in Washington D.C. alone, of which we only know the names of a handful of them in reality. And it's pretty impressive that uh, this coverage was so extensive to the, to the point where, I mean, perhaps it was fortuitous, but, you know, the Knight Committee had not one, but apparently two. Uh, maybe even more. Maybe even I mean, more. Maybe right. even more. I mean, uh, it could be, uh, there was a, there could have been three or four who were gathering information. And, and, you know, it's a matter also, you've got to take into account, like Lydia Lee, when she sort of began her activities, it was pretty unwitting. You know, she didn't realize what was going on, and there is information gathering, and then there is actual espionage. And a lot of the people who were assisting the Soviets in one way or another, uh, some knew, like Lydia Lee at the end knew, who you are and who I'm working for. Uh, but other people would uh, uh, turn over information fairly innocently, uh, in the exchange of information that happens, for example, between newspaper reporters on a regular basis. So, well, taking all of this range then of motivations uh, into account, how do we how do we understand this phenomenon that hundreds of people were in various ways and in various modalities working for the Soviets? I mean, these days, major espionage cases, you know, you get they're not very frequent, and they tend to come, you know, in 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 dribs and drabs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. We can remember now easily the major Soviet or Russian espionage cases of recent years. There was Oliver James and there was uh, Robert Hansen. Mm-hmm. And there was, what, eight years or something of the sort yeah. separating those two. But here we're getting a flood. What was, what was it about that time in America that so many people worked for Moscow? Uh, what you have to look at, I think, is the motivation. And uh, in the realm of espionage, when I teach my class in espionage, I, I describe the mice thesis as it's known in which the uh, uh, motivation is M for money, I for ideology, C for compromise, and E for ego. And when we look at the more recent espionage cases, uh, probably 90% or 95% are motivated by money. We look at um, uh, Aldrich Ames, we look at Robert Hansen. These are people who did what they did based on money and the reward, financial rewards that they got. The thing that makes the 1930s, uh, particularly the, early, the late 20s and into the 30s, so interesting is that uh, there was a general, a general belief by a lot of people when the Great Depression came, for example, that capitalism was imploding and that the wave of the future was going to be communism. You, know, you had a choice, either communism or fascism. Because democracy doesn't seem to be working, or at least capitalism doesn't seem to be working. And uh, what we have in the 1930s and during the Popular Front era as well, we have it in the United States and we have it in England as well, are the ideological communists, people like the Cambridge Five who were motivated by ideology. Um, And I think that's what we see also here in terms of the numbers of people who were willing to assist the Soviet Union, which after all was considered to be an ally, uh, particularly because they were the lone force fighting fascism very early on. We've talked here about a, a relatively minor case, ultimately, of Lydia Lee. We've also talked about much more major cases, Alger Hiss. You, you wrote a, a book about uh, Harry Dexter White, who was a very important figure in the U.S. government at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at all this totality of material, then, are there still major questions for historians to answer 
uh, about Soviet espionage in the United States during the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s? Or do we pretty much have the picture well filled in, or are there still things that we need to know, still gaping holes out there in our understanding, big discoveries to be made? Well, I don't, I'm not sure about big discoveries to be made. I think that Certainly, if we ever get access to GRU records, the Soviet military the Soviet military service. intelligence, and, uh, uh, those will be very revealing in terms of filling out the story of those 300 spies, perhaps, uh, even though some of them probably worked for military intelligence, others worked for the KGB. Um, I, I, the, the, the answer to your question is, is that history isn't stagnant. It doesn't stand still. And the questions that are important to one generation of historians is not necessarily of interest to the next generation of historians. And I think, for example, when we look at the Rosenberg case, so I was here in Washington for a conference on the Rosenberg case, and what sort of emerged out of that was that when you look at the Rosenberg case, the question that has predominated for the last 60 years or so is, number one, was... Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were they, were they spies? And two, if they were spies, was the information that they turned over uh, of great significance or great importance? Well, I mean, I think we have those answers pretty well nailed down now. And the answers are? Uh, well, the answers are is that Julius was very clearly involved in espionage and could have been charged with espionage. Uh, Ethel was uh, not a total innocent. Uh, she could certainly would not be able to be convicted on espionage, but she could and was convicted on conspiracy to commit espionage, which is a much easier legal threshold to actually meet. But um, future historians, when they look at this, I think are going to be focusing on, for example, what was the nature of the type of information that they were turning over were they actually all that important towards the development of the atomic bomb? And we now know that that is not the case, that there were other spies who were much more important, Theodore Hall being one of them. Um, so a, a question that I would ask about this is that what does the Rosenberg case, particularly now that we have the grand jury records, what does the Rosenberg case, um, how does it reflect the American judicial and legal system? And in the case of the Rosenbergs, uh, there was prosecutorial misconduct. Um, I'm convinced if, the, uh, uh, if all the misconduct that the prosecution, this is um, largely Roy Cohn and Irving Sapol, to a certain extent the judge sort of unwittingly, uh, the FBI's role in this, and even up to the higher levels, um, in terms of, of the, the approach that they took to prosecute this case to try to get um, uh, Julius to confess by threatening his wife uh, with death, uh, that uh, uh, it's a matter that, you know, this type of issue, I think, is actually important to look at, is what, what is the ramification of this in terms of contemporary society, for example? Um, when we know somebody is guilty, for example, uh, uh, is it acceptable for the government to use any means available in order to convict that person? The Soviets would probably say yes. Oh, they probably would say yes, indeed. And, um, you know, it's a matter where we live now. I mean, the, the major threat of the 19, the perceived major threat of the 1940s and 50s and 60s, 
as long as the Soviet Union was around, was the communist threat. Well, we don't have that anymore to really speak of. Uh, communism is still, um, you know, in name only in China, and um, it's probably the most capitalistic nation in the world right now. But you still have North Korea, you still have uh, Cuba and all. But it's a matter of the new main enemy now is not uh, communism. The new main enemy is terrorism. And it's a matter that this is a, the war against terrorism is one of these things that could go on indefinitely until somebody declares that it's won. <laughs> you know, um, so the questions change with every generation as to what they look at. And um, I do think that there will be new revelations about espionage. Uh, we'll learn a lot more about, I think, where, where we don't know quite as much uh, is about how uh, how the intelligence agencies in the Soviet Union actually operated. I mean, we've got a little bit of information about that. We know about the the monster uh, barrier and, and this type of a thing, but there's a lot more to be discovered there. And there's a lot more to be discovered in American records if they ever get released. I mean, that's the problem, is that uh, uh, the CIA, for example, it just does not turn over information very much. The NSA is very selective about it. Uh, I know that President Obama has, uh, you know, declared that there is this backlog of, of materials that have to be sorted out and uh, 45 million papers released in the next couple of years, and I can guarantee that's not going to happen. Uh, simply because there isn't the staffing to be able to support that type of thing. So full employment for historians uh, for the foreseeable future, and, and furthermore, history gives us uh, ways to think about the present. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Bruce Craig, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion of Soviet espionage in the United States uh, uh, in times past, and also thanks for helping us think about some of the challenges we face today. Thanks for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.